This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello, and thank you for joining the program today. Last week, we started discussing the power of prayer, the fourth of five powers mentioned in Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, the text by Nam Pell we're following in these programs. The text talks about a specific prayer, namely the prayer to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. As Namkar Pal says, we should make great prayers that by the force of mundane and transcendental merit in general, and especially our own merit created by body, speech and mind throughout the three times, all sentient beings in general, and ourselves in particular, may generate the awakening mind that they have not generated, and that it may abide and thrive in those who have which is wonderful in a culture like that of the Tibetans, which is very much based on prayer. But generally in the West, we've become more cynical about activities like prayer, whose results we cannot measure or experience, or whose measure is equivocal. Last week, the program included an article by Dr. Larry Dosey, a researcher of and believer in prayer, and the positive power of its effects. However, there are others, like Michael Shermer, the author of Skeptic, which you will find at www.skeptic.com, and author of the book How to Believe. In an article for Scientific American titled What Skepticism Reveals About Science, Shermer writes, Most religious claims are testable, such as prayer positively influencing healing. In this case, controlled experiments to date show no difference between prayed-for and not prayed-for patients. And beyond such controlled research, why does God only seem to heal illnesses that often go away on their own? What would compel me to believe would be something unequivocal, such as if an amputee grew a new limb. Amphibians can do it. Surely an omnipotent deity could do it. Many Iraqi war vets eagerly await divine action. In his research, Dr. Larry Dosey found that many controlled experiments on the power of prayer actually did show a positive correlation between prayer and healing. He writes, In writing my books, I looked at all of the studies, some 160 of them. While it is true that some have problems, many are fanatically precise and admirably designed. Two-thirds show that the impact of distant prayer is statistically significant. Undoubtedly, most of the prayers that have been scientifically investigated would be in a language of the West, Primarily, I would guess English. Traditionally, Buddhist prayers and chants are in Pali or Sanskrit, and according to some Tibetan teachers I've encountered, language does make a fundamental difference in the effect of a prayer. Last week, we mentioned an article by Patrick Marsalek titled Prayer Power on the website www.atlantisrisingmagazine.com. The author discusses the issue of language in the article and says this about Sanskrit. Sanskrit is an ancient language whose sounds are thought to be derived from the actual sounds of the universe. In other words, the sound of the word used is thought to be connected with the essence of whatever is being described. This belief 
differs from English or modern languages which are based on a physical and logical connection to what is being described. When one invokes the name of a deity in Sanskrit, it is thought that the power of the deity joins you through the sound frequencies of the name. If, for instance, you call or sing to Ganesha, the elephant-headed god in India, who is thought to be the remover of obstacles, you will actually experience more openness and success. In the same way, each mantra or prayer said in Sanskrit is thought to physically affect change. He goes on, Devotional chanting is believed to have similar qualities. When you repetitiously sing a song in one of these ancient languages, you may experience a shift in your consciousness. We've seen the negative effects of this kind of consciousness shift in some forms of mass hysteria, where people are pulled into the consciousness of a group intent for violence. Group chanting can create a mass hypnosis that can affect positive changes. Also, with mantras and chants, you have the added benefit of repetition, which can help to shift you into a trance state. In a trance, the conscious mind is quieter, more relaxed, which allows for a more direct access to the benefits of whatever words or intentions are being activated within the person's deep unconscious. Mantras and chanting are used worldwide as a part of ritual prayer and healing. Indigenous people use sound and chant in their shamanic rituals. East Indians use specific intonations of sounds which correspond with an entire range of cleansing activities, creating ritual space, even preparing for death and spiritual release. Each of these activities has a cultural history and group intentions to go with them, which makes it easier to enter into the desired mental or spiritual state. Marcelet goes on to say that this effect of specific words, mantras or chants may be a kind of morphic resonance. Now, morphic resonance is a term coined by the biologist Rupert Sheldrake and is defined in Collins' dictionary as the idea that through a telepathic effect or sympathetic vibration, an event or act can lead to similar events or acts in the future or an idea conceived in one mind can then arise in another. Marcelek writes that Rupert Sheldrake suggested, and I quote Marcelek, there may be morphic organizational fields for all kinds of human behavior, social and cultural systems, and even certain kinds of mental activity. These fields are not physical, but are based upon some kind of subtle reality. There may be a morphic field associated with certain mantras and chants, which individuals and groups access for healing. In this way, when a person invokes the name of Jesus in his prayer, he may be accessing all the collective intention of the history and energy of that name through its morphic field. Similarly, it is widely believed that some religious texts are intended to be read aloud in their original language to evoke the spiritual state of their creator. Now, this is certainly true of the way Tibetan Buddhist teachers view texts, as part of a commenting on a text is transmitting an oral reading of the text in full, either before or after the commentary. Marcelek continues, Morphic fields may also explain how individual people can spontaneously intuit a powerful healing phrase for themselves, only to find out that their personal phrase is a mantra that's been used for centuries. Stan Tennant, who is the director of the Meru Foundation, has researched the Hebrew text of Genesis for many years. His research shows how the words of the text are connected to a geometric metaphor, 
that models embryonic growth and self-organization. Though his research is based in the mathematical patterns in the letters of the text and the geometric models that these letters seem to project, it does connect to our discussion of prayer. Tennant suggests that the speaking of this text, especially the ritual regular repetition of the first word, the first sentence, the first paragraph, and then the entire text, is intended to produce a mystical experience. Quite literally, the words are thought to take a person's consciousness through certain proscribed spatial translations and activate the transformation and growth of consciousness within the person. Interestingly, the text is thought to have had a series of hand gestures which accompanied the recitation, which also helped to transmit the morphic resonance of that transcended experience. Now again, this is similar to Tibetan chants accompanied with hand mudras. Marcelet goes on to discuss how language has a much greater spiritual influence on our lives if it is not regarded as only a functional tool. He writes, Indigenous cultures have specific words and entire languages that speak to the, the aliveness and interconnectivity between the natural world and the human world. Thus they are able to literally see that aliveness in a very real way where more civilized people have more difficulty. Some American Indian tribes, such as the Blackfeet, have languages that are based upon verbs, and thus they see everything as being in a kind of flow or change. This is why the physicist David Bohm held dialogues with the Blackfeet in an attempt to find a language that could more accurately describe the quantum world that modern science was discovering. Bohm became aware of how his language limited his ability to comprehend the new quantum world. That is Patrick Marsalek. But imagine the power of prayer if it were able to invoke an intense realization of this aliveness and interconnectivity within us. That may well be what sensitized beings do experience, but for more ordinary folk like myself, perhaps the power of prayer can only really be experienced through a more personal understanding. Hannah Tennant Moore an associate editor of the Santa Barbara Independent and a freelance writer, describes what prayer might mean for people like me in an article for the Buddhist-leaning magazine Tricycle. The article is titled Buddhism's Highest Power. In a subhead, the article poses the question, Is there a place for prayer in our practice? And Tenant Moore answers with, For this practitioner, the answer is an unequivocal yes and a place for God too. Now, if you're interested, you can find the article on tricycle.org slash magazine slash buddhisms hyphen higher hyphen power slash. Although it's so well written and personally interesting, I thought it would be worthwhile presenting it in our program today. However, before that, let's set our motivation as we usually do. Remember that bodh bodhicitta motivation, that is the motivation to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings, is the best of all motivations and is said to bring great positive potential and also alleviate the effects of negative karma. So if you can, please use that as your motivation for participating in the program today. If you're not in a situation to motivate in such a vast way, please at least think of your own liberation from all dissatisfaction and suffering. Thank you. Anna Tennant Moore combines the Buddhist technique of prayer as a mental director with a faith in the great unknown to find the efficacy of prayer. In her article, Buddhism's Higher Power, she writes, 
the most revered place in Sri Lanka is a temple believed to hold one of Buddha's left canine teeth, said to have been rescued from the Buddha's funeral pyre by one of his close female disciples and smuggled into the country eight centuries later in the long dark hair of a princess. During my first trip to Sri Lanka, I visited the Temple of the Tooth just as chanting began at dusk, blasting through loudspeakers throughout the city. On the lawn outside the temple, people of all ages perambulated stupas, made water offerings and did prostrations. Using my backpack as a cushion, I sat down cross-legged next to a tree blooming with tiny yellow flowers, intending to meditate. A local couple strolling past paused and introduced themselves, apparently intrigued by the devout tourist. When you look at Lord Buddha, the man said, gesturing to a stone statue, what do you see? I looked at the Buddha's heavy eyelids, soft belly and upturned palms. Unshakable peace, I said. The man laughed. You are very good, but what do you want for yourself? Wishes, his wife asked, for your life. I had come to this Buddhist nation hoping to escape my worries about my particular life, writes Tenant Moore, and come to terms instead with anatta, the non-existence of a separate permanent self. But here were locals telling me to think of specific things I wanted and to ask Lord Buddha for them, a practice I soon learned is much more common than meditating at Sri Lankan temples. Indeed, Prayer is integral to Buddhist practice in most Asian countries. Tibetans recite mantras to invite help from various deities and millions of people throughout East Asia recite the name of Amitabha Buddha in the hope of being reborn in the Pure Land. The Buddha himself encourages the practice of Buddha Nusati, recollection of the Buddha, sometimes as a means of comfort. If you think of me, any fear, terror or standing of hair on end that may arise in you will pass away. She quotes from the Samyata Nikaya. She, con she continues, For thousands of years, the Parita Suttas, that's the discourses for protection, have been recited in Theravada countries as protection against all kinds of dangers, from disease to snakes. Even the most basic Buddhist practices, metta meditation, may all beings be happy and well, the Bodhisattva vow, may I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, and the vows of refuge, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, contain a spirit of invocation. These practices tend to be interpreted differently in the West. All the American Buddhist centers I've been to reject the idea of a higher power, explaining such vows as an appeal to one's best self rather than to an external source. When we bow before a statue, we're bowing to our own Buddha nature. When we ask that all beings be happy, we're awakening our own compassion. There's nothing wrong with these interpretations. Yet I've found that entrusting myself and my loved ones to a benevolent outside force has only deepened my Buddhist practice. Participating in communal worship at temples in Sri Lanka and India opened me to a devotional aspect of Buddhism that sounds wonky in description but felt powerful as an experience. I've always prayed during hard times but it was only in Sri Lanka that I began to combine prayer with my Buddhist practice. The first time this happened was during the Sala Paraha, an annual parade of dancers, elephants, acrobats and fire breathers that features a procession of the tooth relic in its symbolic form of a casket, carried in a gilded palanquin 
atop an elephant dressed in embroidered tapestries affixed with white lights. Ten hours before the parade was to begin, the streets around the Tooth Temple were already lined with families sitting on newspaper, passing around curry packets, babies and bottles of water. It was close to midnight when the elephant bearing the tooth casket at last made its way along the city's main street. The crowd quieted, people holding their hands at the centre of their chests in prayer or raising babies up to be blessed, privately intoning garters that blended into a wordless hum. As the supposedly 2,000-year-old tooth passed by, carried by an elephant whose garb was probably worth more than the combined salaries of the family I sat with, I was surprised to find myself caught up in a sense of awe and wonder in the face of something greater than myself, a greatness I trusted even, or especially, though I couldn't make it intelligible to my intellect. Secular, educated Americans tend to forget that reverence for the mysterious forces that order the world is a basic human instinct. The Buddha himself turned to outside forces for strength. Perhaps the most iconic Buddhist image depicts the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, in meditation under the Bodhi tree, with one hand touching the ground, asking the earth to protect him from the demons trying to prevent him from reaching enlightenment. Well, I don't know that the Buddha was asking for protection from the earth so much as invoking it as a witness against Mara for his unshakable state. But to continue, and the Buddha's basic teaching that liberation from suffering is possible asks us to trust that we are connected to a reality beyond self-clinging. Yes, most schools of Buddhism teach that we can wake up to this reality, not through our higher power's grace, but through our own efforts. But isn't this reality, accessible to everyone and yet incomprehensible to the ordinary mind, itself a higher power? The ancient Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna called the ultimate truth of worldly existence shunyata, which is usually translated as emptiness or voidness and commonly misunderstood as nothingness. Rather, shunyata implies freedom from fixed concepts and separate individualized forms. Beneath the apparent preeminence of surface life, my house, my body, my job, is a state of pure being or isness, the primordial ground from which everything originates, as Lama Govinda puts it. Pema Chodron refers to emptiness as an often overlooked yet ever-present aspect of human nature. Shunyata refers to the fact that we actually have a seed of spaciousness, of freshness, openness and relaxation in us, she writes. Hannah Tennant Moore continues, Although Shunyata is not a deistic concept in Buddhism, this seed of constant present and openness, which underlies all forms and therefore connects all life, is at the heart of my belief in God. As the Catholic monk Thomas Merton put it, the emptiness which is pure being is the light of God, which, as St. John's Gospel says, gives light to every man who comes into the world. To me, an attitude of prayer means not only staying present with whatever happens, as Buddhism counsels us to do, but also embracing all circumstances with a belief that God, or pure being, is the true way of the world, a truth I may not ever understand. She continues, The vastness and boundlessness of the sky, which Tibetans often use to symbolize shunyata, is the closest I can come to giving physical form to my ineffable sense of God. But I do not think of prayer as beseeching a man on a cloud 
for stuff I want. Much of my family is evangelical Christian, and while they have enriched my days by encouraging me to see blessings everywhere, from homegrown squash to a good song on the radio, some of their prayers are comically specific. I've heard my aunt praise the Lord for fixing a waterlogged cell phone. Buddhism and life have taught me that the essence of suffering is binding one's happiness to particular circumstances. So how could I believe in a God that would concern itself with a weather or a sinus infection or a raise with any temporal individual concepts of goodness? When I invoke God, I'm invoking a reality that transcends my limited sense of what I need to be okay. So I pray not that God will manipulate events to spare me from a particular situation, but that whatever arises will bring me closer to the part of myself that is never anxious, never afraid. As the yogi Sri Nasagadatta Maharaj says, only contentment can make you happy. Desires fulfilled breed more desires. An awareness of this idea, which is the essence of the Four Noble Truths, deepens and broadens my prayers, rather than restricting them to particular outcomes. The Dharma has taught me that trying to manipulate my identity into particular shapes, professional, social, physical, is an endless, thankless battle. As Pema Chodron says, obsessing about getting what you want and avoiding what you don't want does not result in happiness. But just because I have a cerebral understanding of this truth does not mean I am always able to act on it. Seeking pleasure and avoiding pain is deeply ingrained in our psyches. It takes faith to entrust my life to a radically different reality. Call it God or Jesus or Lord Buddha or Truth, whose existence I believe in without any definite empirical proof. Just as Buddhism keeps my prayers from being small and self-serving, prayer helps connect me more deeply to my ideals as represented by the Buddhist teachings. When my mind is running in a hundred different directions, grasping at one idea after another that could fix this or that lousy situation, in other words, when my mind is playing God, it helps to pray out loud, to hear myself trying and failing to make sense of things, until at last the mind is forced to acknowledge its own limits. The hopelessness of praying for specific things gives way to the vast impersonal hope that grace is present in any circumstance. Prayer means accepting that I don't know what's good for me or for the world, but I trust that goodness exists anyway. For the many American Buddhists who have converted from monotheistic religions, this surrender of the personal will to a greater mysterious will could smack of blind obedience to the same theistic rules they've already rejected. Yet as mindfulness practices gain m mainstream appeal, meditation risks becoming just one more item on our self-improvement to-do list along with going to the gym and getting a pedicure. Without some faith in things we do not understand, what is the purpose of any spiritual practice? As long as we insist on helping ourselves only in ways that make logical sense, we will get better only in ways we can measure and quantify, sitting still for longer periods of time, tamping down outbursts of anger. These self-improvements may satisfy the mind, but don't we want more than that? It's easy to forget that the Buddhist warning against attachment to particular outcomes applies to spiritual practice as much as it does to material things. Prayer forces me to examine the motivations beneath my desires, spiritual as well as worldly. 
all the disparate longings for professional success and bodily health and daily mindfulness come down to the same thing. I want to be at ease in the world, comfortable in my own skin. This ubiquitous root longing is, for me, the heart of interconnectedness. We all want to be happy, and when we are afflicted with suffering, we sense in some inscrutable way that it doesn't have to be like this. There must be a way out. Buddhism offers one path of escape, but there's no prescribed set of actions one can take. Meditate in this way for this long, read these books and so on, that magically results in enlightenment. Perhaps the most liberating practice I've found so far is sitting with an attitude of open, honest yearning for a different way of being. Giving myself up to God is a way to stop trying so hard, to rest in the faith that I am connected to something that knows how to care for me better than I know how to care for myself. Awakening the enlightened mind may not be a question of self-improvement, which is never-ending. It may be a question of faith, which is always available right now. According to Merton, original sin, the human impulse to bring suffering upon oneself, does not result from disobedience to God. It comes from a refusal to reveal oneself fully, with all one's limitations and failures. As soon as we experience trouble and suffering, we go and hide from God. This is the sign of original sin. This is what Adam did. As soon as he got into trouble, he didn't pray, he hid. Turning to God means acknowledging my ordinary humanity. No matter how good I try to be, no matter how many Ayurvedic cleanses I do or how many hours I spend meditating, I still feel lost. I am still an imperfect human beholden to self-centered fears and cravings. All of the spiritual practices in the world cannot save me from myself. But I don't get to pick and choose the parts of myself that are worthy of enlightenment. Instead, I must offer my full self up to God so that even my mistakes and sorrows lend power to the prayer for the thing I need most, which is not a new car any more than it's a meditation retreat. If I allow myself to believe my prayers will be answered, I can't help but concentrate all my desires into one great yearning for a peace that, as Merton put it, is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind and the brutality of our own will. She then continues, The posture of true prayer is for me collapse. My mind and body give up. I don't know where to turn, what to do. Meditation seems impossible. There is no way to reason myself out of a bad situation. This collapse, to stay put instead of running, is the first moment of healing. It is kneeling with an arrow in the center of the heart, willing to accept help in any form, not only the one I want. I will take even this pain as a sign of help, since I no longer know what is good for me. I will not wait until I have processed the wounds of childhood and learned to sit perfectly still for one hour straight and given up gluten and alcohol and lust and rage. I will not wait until I am better to show up fully for my life. I will not wait until I know God to pray. Here I am. Help. And that is Hannah Tennant Moore on the power of prayer. What do you think? But that is where we're going to have to leave the program today, for we've now run out of time. Thanks for being with us and I hope you found something interesting and beneficial in our discussion. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings everywhere. I hope you'll join us again next week. Goodbye. 
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.